Sing along if you know this one. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Kids, what's that song called? That's right, Maria. The doxology. The doxology. When we sing the doxology, we are giving praise to God. We are celebrating God by giving him honor and glory for who he is and what he has done. And we punctuate the end of the doxology with amen because the lyrics are true. The word doxology is composed of two Greek words, doxa or glory and logos or speech. So a doxology is glory speech or words that ascribe glory to God. This morning we're going to focus on Paul's doxology in verse 17. This doxology comes uh, right after Paul described Christ coming into the world to save sinners of whom he was foremost. When God's superabounding mercy and grace overflow for us with faith and love that are in Christ Jesus, honoring and glorifying God is the inevitable response, not just for what he has done, but for who he is. Paul's doxology is a response to God's mercy in Christ's saving work, verses 12 through 16. However, this doxology is more. Paul ascribed honor and glory to God for who he is. As Christians, we should praise God for what he has done for us. But the danger is to linger there without moving on to praise God for who he is. Think about this, justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, is a wonderful, wonderful gift, but to what end? Forgiveness of sins is so generous of God, but to what end? Salvation is great, but to what end? These gifts are not ends in and of themselves. They get us somewhere, namely, the honor and glory of God for who he is. Dr. Philip Ryken said this, there comes a time to leave off praising God for what he has done in your life and simply to praise him for who he is in himself. The heartbeat of our ministry at, here at Jerusalem Church is to proclaim the excellencies of God in the gospel so more and more people Give him honor and glory. We want people to delight in God, not simply what God gives them. Now, if I took my children to Chuck E. Cheese's for a violent night of fun, uh, it would break my heart if they valued the pizza and the video games and the singing mouse more than they valued me. If I took Christina out for dinner and jazz in Steinman Park, it would break my heart if she valued the dinner, the jazz, and the cool summer breeze more than she valued me. 
God's gift of salvation is awesome because it displays for us and gives us God himself. True and lasting joy is found in giving God alone the honor and glory he is due and enjoying him for all that he is. That's the simple point this morning. True and lasting joy is found in giving God alone the honor and glory, the honor and glory that he is due and enjoying him for all that he is. Verse 17 is an expression of Paul's praise and delight in God himself. We begin here, to the king of ages be honor and glory forever and ever. All honor and glory must go to God because God is the eternally preeminent king. A king is a a sovereign ruler who has supreme authority and power over a people. There have been many famous kings and emperors throughout history, uh, David, Solomon, Alexander the Great, Julius Caesar, Constantine, yet all of history's sovereigns had great limitations. The, the days of their reign were numbered. All of those kings are dead, and their sovereignty came to an end. God is the king of the ages. His sovereignty has no end. In ages, in era, it's a period of time. To be the king of the ages means that God has always been king and God will always be king. In every age and at every time, God reigns and all other sovereigns live beneath his absolute sovereignty. There is nothing terrestrial and extraterrestrial or extraterrestrial that does not exist beneath the reign of the king of ages. Psalm 10:16 says the Lord is king forever and ever. Psalm 29:10 says the Lord sits enthroned as king forever. Moses and the people of Israel sang in Exodus 15:18, the Lord will reign forever and ever. Even Nebuchadnezzar The great Babylonian king said after regaining his sanity, I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. There is something about sovereign power. Uh, A bit ago I had jury duty. That comes every now and again. And and I went into the Lancaster County Courthouse and was reminded of the honor of sovereign power. The honor of sovereign power. We were prepped before entering the courtroom. And then we entered quietly. And the judge entered and we rose. The judge spoke and we listened. There was demonstrable reverence in that courtroom because power was present. And yet, there was a sense of goodness that I felt in sitting there and hearing what was being said about justice. Justice was endorsed in the courtroom, and it seemed right, and it seemed fair. God is the king of the ages. He rules with justice and goodness and sovereignty. He always does right. His reign is absolute. His kingship over our lives is right and good, providing us with incredible joy. God is king over your finances, king over your sexuality, 
king over your health and marriage and children and education and country and career and future. The Christian life is all about joyfully submitting to the reign and rule of God, the king. Only fools oppose the king of the ages. And only the wise will find joy in bowing their knee to his greatness. The second part of Paul's doxology fits nicely with the first. To the immortal God be honor and glory forever and ever. God is immortal. He's incorruptible. He's imperishable. That's amazing. If you just think about that one little bit for a while, it's amazing. Now, we call certain things perishables, things like fresh meat, uh, things you have to refrigerate or foods that spoil quickly. And then we have non-perishables or things like peanut butter or um, canned foods, and they spoil you know, a lot, a lot s more slowly. And then there are Twinkies, because Twinkies have a, a category of their own. They have a shelf life just shy of eternity, my goodness. And actually, if you do research on that, their shelf life is, is about 25 days, which actually is still concerning for some people. So there you have it. The sense of the Greek word here is imperishability, imperishability. The same word translated immortal is used in 1 Corinthians 9.25 like this. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable or an immortal. During the Isthmian Games in Greece, the victors were awarded wreaths of celery or pine leaves. Well, in time, those wreaths did what? They decomposed. They broke down. They were perishable. Imperishable never decomposes. To say that God is immortal is to say he is imperishable. Now, the Ephesians knew well that Caesar claimed immortality. But Paul emphasized God's immortality. Unlike Caesar and other potentates, God is not subject to aging, not subject to death, not subject to decomposition. He needs no sleep. He needs no rest. Neither does he depend on food or drink. He cannot be killed. He cannot be overthrown. God reigns forever at his best, at the fullness of his glory, entirely beautiful, entirely glorious, entirely prevailing. Superheroes. Batman and Superman and Spider-Man, they're cool. They're cool because they give us an illustration of immortality, but our imaginations have had to conceive them. Our imaginations can only echo that which is not conceived by imagination, but that which is real, God himself. See, fantasy will always be disappointing, always because only reality gives us an immortal God. God's immortality uniquely qualifies him to be king of the ages. His reign is immortal and he cannot be overthrown. Who succeeds a king that never dies? All that we know in this life is mortal. It's mortal. Everything is perishing. Everything is wearing out. Everything is breaking. Nothing lasts. Our existence would be entirely hopeless if it were not be for an immortal God. And the gospel promises. This is amazing, folks. The gospel promises believers immortality. 
Read 1 Corinthians 15. Our bodies, amen on this, are wasting away. We will die, but the day of our glorious resurrection is coming when God will raise us to imperishability. And our mortal bodies will put on immortality. In the end, all those who trust Christ will find themselves immortals, brought into the immortal joy of their immortal God through their immortal Christ. We give God honor and glory because the king of the world will become I'm sorry, the kingdom of the world will become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign, what? Forever and ever. God alone can give us immortal joy. Next, to the invisible God be honor and glory forever and ever. The invisibility and immateriality of God are infinitely precious, and yet, Not everybody sees them as precious. Not everybody embraces the invisibility and the immateriality of God, even though they're glorious. Kenneth Copeland, the famous televangelist, said years ago that God is, quote, very much like you and me, having a body complete with eyes and eyelids, ears, nostrils, a mouth, hands and fingers and feet. He even said that God is 6'2 or 6'3 and likely weighs a couple hundred pounds. That's blasphemy. Mormon doctrine teaches that God the Father has a body. Joseph Smith, the founder of Mormonism, wrote, quote, the Father has a body of flesh and bones as tangible as man's, end of quote. Mormon doctrine essentially refashions God after man's image. Folks, millions and millions of people, religious people, people that would count themselves as Christians, believe God is as tangible and visible as we are. We cannot empty God of his glory. God's invisibility, his immateriality are part of his glory. How does it honor and glorify God to reduce him into our likeness? He is incomprehensible and magnificent. And because God is a spirit, you cannot see him. The the children's catechism is right. God is a spirit and does not have a body. Paul believed the invisibility of God was worthy of honor and glory. In Colossians 1, 15 and 16, Paul spoke of Jesus Christ and said this, he is the image of the invisible God. God told Moses, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. But in his kindness, God came to us. He condescended. The the Father sent his invisible son to become visible so humanity could safely see the glory of God in Christ. In the person of Jesus Christ, we see God the Father, we see his glory. God's invisibility makes him unapproachable. 1 Timothy 6.16 says God dwells in unapproachable light. The glory of the gospel is that God became visible in and through his son. Jesus Christ has shown us God's glory in himself. Christ is the image of the invisible God. Who can approach an invisible God in the dazzling and spectacular light of his glory. No one. 
No one is making that journey. A glimpse of the face of God would prove lethal for us. But in his tender mercy and grace, God came to us and made himself visible in Christ. Christ is the escort into the glorious presence of God. Jesus promised that the pure in heart would see God. Only Christ can make us pure. Only Christ can ready us to see God. Invisibility is an attribute of God which many people find a hindrance to belief in God. They think seeing is believing, and yet, oddly, they enjoy Wi-Fi just the same. (laughs) Reality does not demand visibility. Are all real things subject to the scientific method or the visibility test? Some invisible things transcend science, things like love, things like generosity and sacrifice. Sometimes, hold on to this, okay? Listen closely, sometimes invisible things prove themselves invisible things. Romans 1.20 clearly states, quote, his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. God is gloriously invisible, yet he has left us visible evidence of his power and nature in creation. God's invisibility and immateriality are mind-blowing. Who can figure this out? It seems fitting for us to give, (laughs) give God honor and glory for his invisibility. After all, God has given us Christ who will take us to see him. Last one, to the only God be glory, honor and glory forever and ever. To the only God. Perhaps this is most significant. We honor and glorify God because he is the only God. The Greek phrase may sound familiar to you, monotheo, monotheo, monotheism. One God. Christians are monotheists because there is only one God to believe in. Yes, that one God is three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, but God is one and He is the only God. Question five of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, if you've never read that, please read it sometime. It asks this, are there more gods than one? And the answer is, there is but one. One only, the living and true God. And then question six clarifies the Trinity by asking how many persons are there in the Godhead? The answer, there are three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one God, the same in substance, equal in power and glory. The Father is the only God, The Son is the only God. The Spirit is the only God. Each person is equal in power and glory, equal of our praise, equal of our honor, equal of our glory, and yet there remains only one God. Mystifying. I know. Mystifying. Jesus said in John 5, 44, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? 
Jude's doxology claims to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Why should we give honor and glory to God? Because he is the only God. The only God. He is exclusive. There is none higher or parallel to him that deserves any honor and glory. Everything else is created. It would be inequitable to attribute the victory of World War II to Harry Truman. What about FDR, Patton, MacArthur, and countless others? It would be inequitable to applaud Bill Gates for his Microsoft empire without also applauding Paul Allen, Microsoft's co-founder. But when it comes to God, there is only God to applaud. He has never received any help. Considering the eternal existence of God and that the universe existence depends entirely on God, what else is there to give honor and glory to? Now, the Bible mentions other gods, yet says God is greater or above them, but they are mentioned nonetheless. However, we must, we must very carefully consider how the Bible talks about these other gods. Psalm 96, verses 4 and 5 says this. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. But the Lord made the heavens. All other gods are worthless idols. They are products of the imagination. Yet the only God is the creator of all things. I won't read Deuteronomy 32, 15 through 18, but it suggests that behind strange gods are demons that are not actually gods. So I would argue that there is only one true God, the true and almighty and triune God, and all other gods are worthless idols promoted by Satan and his demons, which were created by God. 1 Corinthians 8, verses 4 through 6 adds this, Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on, on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Any religion or cult that does not worship the only true God as he has revealed himself clearly in Scripture is a false system that promotes, as Paul says later in 1 Timothy, the teachings of demons and essentially promotes the worship of Satan himself. Now, that may sound radical, considering we probably have friends that are in these groups. Okay, it might sound radical, but the sound doctrine of Scripture leaves room for one God, one God. And all other gods oppose him and our conceptions and inventions of Satan and his minions to distract from the glory of that one and only God. Even the good things that God has created for our enjoyment 
can be elevated to God's status in our lives and vie for the honor and glory God alone deserves. Paul's phrase, the only God, parallels the first and the second commandments. Can you see this? God himself spoke and said, you shall have no other gods before me. And he didn't stop there. He told us how to worship him. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is, excuse me, in the earth beneath. Maybe I should have some water. Or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. Now, we have to ask the question, why is that important? Why is God so fixated on his supremacy? And his being worshipped and served that nothing else would ever distract from his glory. Why is that so important? Here's why it's important. Because he is the only God. He is the only God. He is jealous for all honor and all glory to go to him because he alone is God. Now, some find this troubling as if God is arrogant. As if he should not seek all honor and glory for himself. And that would be right if God was just like us. But God is king of the ages. He is the only God. So if God was to promote, hang with me on this logic here, if God was to promote the glory of something other than himself, he would have to go down in order to find it. To find something to glorify, that would be idolatry. God cannot elevate something lesser than himself to be greater than himself. God cannot be guilty of vainglory because he is the only God who reigns supreme over all things. There is nothing higher. You can't go up any more than God himself. There is nothing higher for God to ascribe honor and glory to. So here is a surefire way to destroy your joy to kill it, to just ruin your life. I want to tell you how to do that. Bow yourself before something created. Love it. Serve it. Honor and glorify it. And your idolatry will drag you straight to hell where you will suffer forever knowing you settled for less than God. But if you want immortality... If you want immortal joy, bow yourself before the only God. Love him, serve him, honor and glorify him alone through Christ alone, and he will lift you up to see his face forever. You will not be disappointed. Paul concludes his doxology with amen, amen. Amen is not just this mindless word that we tack on to wrap up a prayer. I hope you know what it means. To say amen is to agree with what is prayed. So if you hear like a weird prayer, just don't say it, okay? Because by saying amen, you agree to what was said. You say, that's true. I agree with that. That's what God's word said. Amen means truly. Jesus said that language, amen, amen. Truly, truly, I say to you. Paul used I mean to say God truly is king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, and God truly is worthy of all honor and all glory forever and ever. It's true. It's true. 
we are so easily distracted. We're like cats chasing laser pointers. You know what I'm talking about? Frantic, weird, all over the place, easily distracted. We get more excited about seeing rock stars and politicians than we do the king of the ages. We find a new movie release more exciting than an immortal God. We watch visible and material things with awe and whoa, and that's a, amazing that that happened, yet we yawn at the invisibility and immateriality of God. We adore mass-produced gadgets until they are replaced by the next mass-produced fad, and yet the only and exclusive God seems ordinary. We are easily distracted, and we are easily duped. Why is it that the 24 elders of Revelation 4 fall before the throne of God in worship and praise? Why? Well, what they say tells all. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. God is worthy. God is worthy, worthy. He is worthy of honor. He is worthy of praise. He is worthy of glory because of who he is, not just because of what he did, but because of who he is. It will take here at Jerusalem Church, here in Mannheim, in Pennsylvania, in the United States of America, and in the world, it will take a massive overflow of God's grace for us to honor and glorify God. We must look to Christ to escort us deep into the character and nature of God so that in Christ we can see the glory of God and worship him for who he is. That's going to take a massive work of grace, a massive work of the Holy Spirit. So, perhaps these six things can help you, can help you um, overflow with doxology, with honor and glory in your heart. Here are six ways to find joy in giving the honor and glory to God alone. Now, I must say, before I give you them quickly, you cannot do any of these things by your own strength. You cannot. If you just decide by your own resolve, I'm going to do this, pastor, you will frustrate yourself or lead yourself right into pride. You'll deceive yourself into thinking you're so great. Attempt any of these apart from union with Christ, you will be frustrated. But if by the Spirit's power you do them, you will honor and glorify God and you're going to grow happier and happier and happier in the process. Number one, do everything for God's glory. Do everything for God's glory. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That is how you should respond to the mercy and grace of God in your life. Number two, offer God pure and passionate worship according to his word. That last part is very important, according to his word. We just covered this in the book of Malachi in that series. Worship God in a way he commanded you to in his word. 
and do not introduce innovation that suits your tastes. Innovation in worship thwarts the honor and glorification of God. Number three, give your money and possessions to God. Proverbs 3.9 says, honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. You know what? Materialism dishonors God. Materialistic Christians dishonor God. Radical generosity and sacrifice for God's mission and for God's people shows the supremacy and beauty of Christ. Number four, talk about what God has done in your life through Christ. Notice I'm emphasizing through Christ. I think we should talk about the material blessings of God and thank God for them. He's given it to them. But even more, we should tell people about what God has done for us spiritually and what he is doing for us spiritually through Christ. People need to hear us praise God because we've had a victory over sin. People need to hear us praise God because we are increasing in sanctification, becoming more and more like his son. People need to hear excitement in us to give a testimony of the faithfulness of God, how he provides through Christ the strength that we need in our moments of weakness, in all moments, because we're always weak and dependent. Number five, do lots of good works in a way that people know to give glory to God. Help people out. Be a good neighbor. Do great things for people and do it all in a way that they give credit to God and they don't give credit to you. And that takes some, some strategy. Um, you need to explain for people why you are loving them and by what power is in you to love them. All right, last one, six, treasure God more than anything else. Treasure God more than anything else. Don't exchange the glory of the immortal God for created things. Show the world that you treasure God most and he will be honored and glorified in your life. 1 Timothy 1.17 is a powerful doxology. Um, it is meant to compel you when you read it to give honor and glory to God alone. Likely the greatest mind in America ever, that, that America ever produced, it, it, it's probably Jonathan Edwards. He was an intellectual giant, and he was a devout Christian man. And he wrote things that will just blow your mind, and so read him if you get a chance. But listen to what he said about his encounter with 1 Timothy 1.17. It's a great place to end. Listen to what Jonathan Edwards said about this verse. As I read the words, there came into my soul and was, as it were, diffused through it, a sense of the glory of the divine being, a new sense, quite different from anything I ever experienced before. Never had any words of Scripture seemed to me as these words did. I thought with myself how excellent a being that was and how happy I should be if I might enjoy that God and be wrapped up to him in heaven, and be, as it were, swallowed up in him forever. I kept saying, and as it were, singing over these words of Scripture to myself, and went to pray to God that I might enjoy him, and prayed in a manner quite different from what I used to do, with a new sort of affection, 
An inward sweet sense of these things at times came into my heart and my soul was led away in pleasant views and contemplations of them and my mind was greatly encouraged to spend my time in reading and meditating on Christ, on the beauty and excellency of his person and the lovely way of salvation by free grace in him. Like Edwards, let our musings on the beauty and excellency of the Son of God lead us to honor and glorify God through the enjoyment of God. Father, we give you thanks for Paul's clear doxology here in 1 Timothy. Oh, how it must have resonated inside of the soul of Timothy. How he possibly cheered over receiving Paul's words that God is great. He is awesome. He is king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God. To him be glory and honor and praise forever and ever and ever and ever. God, may that resonate in our soul. I pray that we would worship you with all that we have because you are great and glorious. And may we do it through Christ who is our way to you. What he has done has reconciled us to you, God. And I pray that we would have the hope and expectation of seeing you, that you would make us pure, that one day we may stand in your presence and give honor and glory without sin, without things getting in the way. Just one awesome celebration party for you. All for your son's sake, we pray. Amen.